pregame. I am licensed marriage and family therapist, sports family therapist, Dr. Lauren Pitts. That guy. I'm not even going to tell y'all what he did to me be before the show because he's ignorant and ill-behaved. And yes, it is. NFL football is back and he's ignorant. But Look, all I, all I know is anybody that takes the time to be sedated for 11 hours for a tattoo... I mean, it, it, what, I, what, did I, what did I tell you last week, though? I said, you all have a phenomenal defense. I have high hopes for your defense, that your defense will keep you. I'm, I'm being for real. I'm being honest. I promise you. What did, did you get a chance to catch the Chiefs and Lions game on Thursday? I caught the tail end of it because unlike yourself, I see anywhere from 10 to 14 clients a day. So I was coming out of session. So I got to catch the third and fourth quarter of the game because I saw clients up until oh dark 30. Mm -hmm. um, but yes, I did. And I was like, oh, my The Lions God. are for real. The Lions are about to beat the Chiefs. What the heck is going on right now? So yeah, how about them Lions? The Lions, I mean, I will say the Chiefs didn't have Travis Kelsey. So, you know, right. like that was one thing. But the Lions are for real this year. I think they have yeah. a really good team. They had a really great season last year. Yeah. Just barely missed the playoffs. So yeah. Andre thinks they're going to win their division. He, um, for my, Andre is my son, y'all, just in case y'all forgot. They, he said, Mama, I think they might be competing so. for the division. It, it really just depends on how um, mm -hmm. Jordan Love does with the Packers. But mm -hmm. I don't think Minnesota will be as good as they were last year. Okay. Um, so the Lions have a very legitimate chance of winning that division. Okay. Um, you know, I, we'll see about the Cowboys. We TBD. Okay, moving right along to TCU in Colorado. Phenomenal game. We hey, Coach Coach Prime kept on saying we told you all we was coming. We told you all we was, and and I'll be honest with you. At the beginning of the season, I predicted Colorado to win at least seven games. If I'm being okay. honest, I did not have TCU as being one of those seven. Um, I did not know what their line and the offensive line and defensive line was going to look like. But yeah. through the first game, I mean, they look good. They're running their freshman yeah. running back, phenomenal athlete. Wow. And I mean, Travis. And we gave love to, to Coach Tyrell before because we had oh, him yeah. on that season. Shout out season. to Coach Tyrell. So we loved him up before the game and was like, go do that thing. But it just like, ooh. I was hey, like, it's, the, it's the first game. They lost a lot of good players from their team last year. There was a right, reason right, why right. the national championship last year. So, yeah. look, it's a learning lesson, right? Yeah. No such thing as wins and losses, but wins and lessons. So yeah, yeah. learned a lot of lessons from that game on Saturday. I know when they got out there on Sunday, watched some of that film, got out there, got loose a little bit, get another mm -hmm. chance this week to do uh, make things right. So, you know, shout out to Coach Tyrell and TCU. But yep. hey, Colorado is going to be something to reckon with. I'm excited to – they got a game today against Nebraska. That's going to be a really good game. Yeah, but man. A few short weeks, they play USC. That's going to be a great game. I cannot the Trojans. Wait. The Trojans cannot. are coming. I cannot wait. Um, yeah. So we got a really, really powerful episode again today, you all. Welcome back to episode 132 of House Talk Pregame. We have a very special guest with us this morning. We have Miss Susan Brown with us. Miss Susan, how are you this morning? I'm good. I'm just so thankful to be here and thank y'all for having me and whoever's listening. Y'all better tune into everything Lauren and Ronnie and everything they do. Just follow right along because they're here to give y'all the best of the best. So Thank you, thank you. We really appreciate you being here this morning. We know, we know you have a really great story to talk about this morning and uh, in uh, line with our topic and everything. So we're going to get to that in a few short minutes. Miss Susan, before we get started on that, do you have an NFL team that you root for? 
I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm going to lean in close and be like, whoever's serving the food. <laughs> I'm, I'm there for the party. I'm like, going for that. let's go team. Who's got the nachos? Let's go chicken wings. I'm there. <laughs> I know that's right. I know that's right. Hey, sometimes that's the best fan to be. As long as you're not a fan of the Cowboys, I can rock with you. There's 31 other phenomenal teams out there that actually make an impact, actually do things, actually win. So, you know, hey, we can get along in that. I'm there for the, I'm there for the, I'm there for the party. I'll cheer for anybody. Wonder, does that, does that uh, make me unpopular maybe in the NFL world? Because I'm not biased. It's a lot of wishy-washy fans. Don't worry about it. Okay, there you go. I always say Eagle fans are fair weather fans anyways. You didn't, I didn't know there were so many Eagle fans until they became 8-0 last year. So uh, the one thing I was husband's a college football is, fan, but my husband's a college football fan. He's all about Alabama roll tide. So Ooh, he's going with the crimson. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Hey, look, I, I hope they, I'm not going to lie. Um, I want to see more from uh, their quarterback. I think he can mm-hmm. be really good. Um, mm-hmm. If he's really good, I think Alabama will be just fine. Um, I think college football is wide open this year. Because mm-hmm. um, Georgia had all their players recruited by the Eagles. So like, do yeah. they have anybody left? <laughs> and they didn't. They didn't really shock me. Like I watched. Them, I watched mm-hmm. their game last week. I watched the first half, and I really wasn't too impressed by them last week. So okay. You know, we'll we'll. See. I mean, it was the first game of the season. Yeah. We'll see how they look. You know, come week two, yeah. week three, and when they really get into some SEC competition. The mm-hmm. SEC did not look good last week at all in out of conference wow. games. Wow. Um, but yeah, so we have a really great topic for you all today. We're going to be talking about. Oh no, where's my uh, screen at? Why is my screen broken? Oh no. Oh, you no. want me to? No, we got it. When disaster okay. strikes, the healing boot camp. Yeah. A family crisis occurs. Uh, when a family has to change it is a turning point things will either get better or they will get worse sometimes um sometimes day-to-day hassles can pile up and cause stress overload you know so what do you do when something unexpectedly hits your family you know we can't predict family tragedies we can't predict when emergencies mm-hmm. come up um as best as we can try to prepare mentally to have things around us and and, and you know an action plan we just really don't know what's going to happen until it happens so what do you do in a situation where your family comes under some type of tragedy some type of unexpected event or things like that so we have susan brown joining us this morning that's going to be talking about that also as well um so before we get into that topic i know dr pitts you had a couple of things you wanted to touch on and also a mental health tip of the yeah. week Absolutely. Um, because this topic, you know, the truth be told, this topic is is near and dear to my heart for a variety of reasons. But I wanted to offer some insight from a clinical perspective. And, and Susan and Ronnie, as I was thinking about what disorder might present itself in these types of situations when these athletes are experiencing family crisis. And the one that just kept coming to mind, kept coming to mind, kept coming to mind is adjustment disorder. And as I was rereading your bio and, and doing the research that Ronnie and I always do before a show, I said, you know what? I want to speak to adjustment disorder. So what is adjustment disorder? Adjustment disorder is a short-term condition. It's diagnosed in an individual who experiences an exaggerated reaction to a stressful or a traumatic event. Stressors can be single events like you know, a, a short-term incident or something like that that requires the athlete or the family member to have to go through rehab, or it could be a bad breakup in a relationship, or it could be a multiple events like 
struggles on the field, like, you know, Ronnie's always taking jabs, you know, persistent losses, things like that, or, or injuries or, or what have you, financial issues, legal issues, stressors can happen to the individual and the family or the entire team, as we saw last year with DeMar Hamlin, and truth be told, the entire NFL and all of us that witnessed that horrific, horrific event with him collapsing. So we look at that and it, it can cause situational depression. It can have this, this domino effect that adversely impacts the, the family system in a traditional sense, but also I want to look at the word family subjectively and say the team is a family too. And we definitely saw that with Namar Hamlin. I think that we saw part of that too when LeBron James's son had cardiac arrest you know, a few weeks ago and what that looks like. So what I wanna emphasize here is that we're all going to experience circumstances beyond our control. We cannot plan for everything. But what we can do when these circumstances arise is we can make our self-care a priority. And Susan is definitely going to touch on that uh, when she gives her, the, her story. I can't emphasize enough the importance of self-care when you're finding yourself in these situations because no, none of us are any good to anybody if we don't put our oxygen mask on first. We have to be able to do that because the stress, and again, Susan's gonna to speak to that, right? The stress, the physical, the financial, the emotional, the spiritual adjustments that we are going to have to make when these crises arise can be detrimental to our own overall health and well-being if we don't make self-care a priority. So when you look at in my research, I looked at athletes that had experienced family crises, and that list is endless. DeMar Hamlin and, and the, the teeming family was the first one that I put on my list last season. And then I went to, you know, Mike Tyson and what he went through and losing his son with the accident on the, the or child on the accident with the treadmill, Michael Vick and, and all of the stuff that went on with the, the dog stuff one of the most horrific ones, OJ Simpson, um, Tiger Woods and his fidelity issues and what that did to the whole family system. We're hearing a lot in the news right now about Michael Orr suing the Tillies for all of that fiasco that's going mm -hmm. on around the blind side. Again, Bronny James collapsing from cardiac arrest, the loss of Michael Jordan's father and how he retired and then came back and we all saw him convulsively crying when they won the championship on the floor. You know, my quarterback, Dak Prescott, and the tragic loss of his brother from suicide. Um, Venus and Serena Williams' sister, uh, Yatundi, being murdered in 2003. Brett Favre playing the day after he lost his father to heart attack. Um, literally last night on TV, We Are Marshall was on. And that was the 1970 tragedy where 75 players and coaches from Marshall University in West Virginia were killed so tragically in that plane crash. Dale Earnhardt Sr. dying on the track in the Daytona um, Speedway. And then five, six months later, Dale Jr. going on to win the race that five months previously he had lost his dad on. Adrian Peterson in 2013 lost his two-year-old son that he had just learned about from the little boy's mom's boyfriend assaulting him and the child succumbing to his injuries. Doug Flutie lost both of his parents to heart attack within an hour of each other. And for those of you who don't remember who Doug Flutie is, he used to be backup 
to Tom Brady for the New England Patriots. <clears throat> so that list goes on and on and on. But our guest today, though she went through extreme crisis, extreme tragedy, her story didn't end that way. Susan Brown. Ronnie, you're going to read part of her bio. Absolutely. And, and thank you for sharing that. And, and before we get into that, um, in, in relation to the topic, I do want to um, send our condolences to the uh, family of Matthew Gibbs. He was a, a freshman at Virginia State uh, University who unfortunately uh, passed away last weekend. Um, he was a part of the football team and everything. So um, if everybody can, you know, just please send their prayers and condolences to his family. Um, I believe his memorial service is actually his memorial service was yesterday down in South Carolina where his hometown was. Um, so I thought some prayers are with him and his family. Um, and yeah, so in relation to our topic, we have Miss Susan Brown with us this morning. And thank you again for joining us, Miss Susan. So Susan, for those who have never heard of you, so you were a competitive swimmer um, through your uh, high school and uh, collegiate years. Where did you go to school at uh, for uh, college? Yeah, so I was at a um, Division II school called Delta State University. It's in a little tiny town of Cleveland, Mississippi. Okay. And we were actually the fighting okra. So that's a thing. <laughs> they, got a, uh, they got a pretty good football team as well. They yeah, they had a decent football team. team. When I was there, they had a decent um, baseball team. And yeah, so, and the swim team, um, some, some of those guys were like off the charts, like hitting nationals and everything like that. And I was a distance swimmer, so I don't have a single fast twitch muscle fiber in my body. I'm all about the distance. Um, so my favorite race was the mile, which, um, you know, if you count like uh, down and back, it's 33. But if you count lengths, like just one way, it's 66, so like one, two, three, four. So that was my favorite. And um, yeah, I, th something about swimming, you know, what got me into swimming is that I had a hard time in school growing up being like really bullied and everything. And so for me, swimming was like when the water was around my ears, it was like I could drown it all out and I could just be there, you know. And um, that was kind of my intro to sports. And I didn't start till I was like 12. Now, my mom had always been athletic and she was like in ridiculous shape all the time to the point that when my sister and I were teenagers, it was like, come on, you can't have better legs than us. It's not fair, you know, like. She was always a runner and I always hated running. That's a little foreshadowing of how things change. And I'd rather have my toenails pull out than run. I was like, no, I'm just going to swim. Um, but yeah, I love, love, love swimming. So yeah, later on became a marathoner and a runner. Yeah, so. Dope. And yeah, so, you know, um, was on scholarship for swimming at Delta State. Um, and then you uh, talked about in your bio how your mom was a, a triathlete, uh, mm -hmm. athlete and of the family and everything. Um kept herself in really phenomenal shape. And then unfortunately on Christmas day in 2005, she was involved in a terrible car accident that left her as a C1 quadriplegic. I had a chance to look up what that exactly meant. And um, I believe it's on a scale of one to four, C1 and C2 being the most severe of the uh, stages. Um, and from that moment forward, you instantly became, in, in other words, the parent of your parent you know, yeah. having to be responsible for her day in and day out. And you mentioned about how, especially in the early months after the incident, how, you know, at any given moment, it was touch or go. Any given moment, it could be just, you know, you never know what's going to happen. Um, and having to deal with the 24-7 care of your mom um, and just the responsibilities that requires of you um, and of your family as well and the entire family. Um, 
you talked about how, you know, trying to balance all of those multiple responsibilities. And, and because of that, it started to not only play on your mental health, but your physical health as well, too. Um, and eventually through finding a walking partner, and then also too, by the time you uh, moved to Texas, had lost over 60 pounds, had joined a, a fitness boot camp, and also began uh, to do marathons. Um, and like you kind of said, you know, foreshadowing for somebody who couldn't stand the sight of running any type <laughs> of miles, now running 26.2 miles anytime, you know, which is a phenomenal feat. Um, so yeah, so welcome Ms. Susan. Um, so yeah, if you uh, wouldn't mind, please tell us a little bit more about yourself. Thank you. Yeah, I'm so happy to be here. Um, yeah, so it's just like most people, um, you know, none of us are like one trick ponies and life isn't like a linear path. So my background is um, I was a paramedic. And so a lot of what y'all talked about earlier and how Dr. Lauren alluded to, you know, that adjustment um, disorder is that you know, one thing I learned as a paramedic is that um, age has nothing to do with death. You know, I would see drunk drivers kill entire families, including babies in car seats. Um, and I would see many other things I won't mention here. But um, the thing about it is, is we all hope it gets to have something to do with death, right? Like the three of us here, we hope we get to be like in our 90s and even hundreds and we get to see generations and we get to be contributing to society and serving, you know. Um, but the reality of it is, anything can happen at any moment. And um, that was like really good for me as a paramedic because I always wanted to serve. I always was very compassionate. Um, I didn't do it for long because I had enough uh, traumatic pediatric deaths and enough um, close calls with myself being shot at, things like that. So um, that was before I was my mom's caregiver. And um, yeah, there's nothing higher than your C1 than your brainstem. So our breathing is controlled by our C3. So that meant she was vent dependent as well with the trach. So there was not a single thing she could do. And she was very young. She was only 58 when the wreck happened. And, um, you know, so anyway, so my background was a paramedic and then it's her with the caregiver. I'd also been a health and safety director at a local Red Cross in um, Hattiesburg, Mississippi during 9-11. And so everything had always been, I'd always been very drawn to not just the sports world, but what seemed in my mind to interlock with the sports world was not just health and fitness but just serving and that kind of toughness and that grit to get through everything and I know that my swimming years are what like built that in me because we all know here when you do sports it's not about what you want to do it's not about what you feel like doing right and I think that's why so much of the world is so crazy nowadays because everybody's so much up into their feelings you know I don't feel like doing it well who cares do it anyway you know and when you're in sports does your coach care if you don't feel like no, get out there and do it anyway. Get in the pool and do it anyway. Run your laps anyway. I don't care. No, And so, but that's so good. You know, it's good for us because you're building fortitude, you're building grit and you're building endurance that you're going to need to have to fall back on at other times in life that don't relate to sports. And so all those things, man, they're so necessary. And, you know, I'm, it's just such a skill that people don't realize is a skill. They think, oh, well, you're just strong, or oh, well, you're just resilient. Um, maybe, maybe I'm also dying a little bit inside as I'm doing this, but I know I have to do it anyway. And that's something that sports really teaches you because you got to get up the early mornings, you got to get in the pool, you got to go do the laps, it doesn't matter how you feel it doesn't matter if you feel like it. And sometimes you do the workout and, and you feel crappy, right? You feel like it wasn't a good one, but you still know within the day, at least I did it, you know, right. maybe you swam your worst race, you're like, 
but at least I did it, you know, so you know you can do things when you don't feel like it, which is paramount to surviving tragedy. Absolutely. That's a really great point you touched on. And I think sports does a really great job of teaching people the difference between motivation and discipline. And yes. to your point about feelings, you know, I always tell people motivation is the feeling, you know, I feel inspired, I feel eager and encouraged to do this thing, try this out. But then when I get started, that motivation goes away. Yeah, quickly. It's so and fickle. Motivation is so fickle. And then it's like, yeah. It's far and fleeting. It's here today, gone tomorrow. But discipline is the behavior that motivation should spark in you. Discipline is the consistency of day in and day out doing the little things that help you. Like you said, there's so many skills that translate from the sports world to the real world. Being yeah. a leader, being consistent, showing up on time, being accountable, being resilient. Like you said, having that mental fortitude, you know, knowing when your body's ready to give up, knowing that if I just push through, if I just get through this rep, if I just get through this lap, if I just get through this practice, right? I did something that's going to help me the next day to get even better. And a lot of times when you don't have that type of experience, and like I think sports is a really great place to have that exposure because yeah. it's at the end of the day, it's a sport, you know, it's not do or die, it's not life or death, your life doesn't necessarily depend on it, per se, you choose to do the sport, but there's so many life lessons that come up in the, in, in a game, in a meet, um, in, in any type of situation, you know, so I think that was a really great point that you touched on. I wanted to ask you in, in um, terms of having to find out about your mom and everything on in 2005 on Christmas Day, um, how was it? Because like you said, you're a paramedic. And yes, when you see other people go through traumatic injuries and stuff like that, yes, uh, me and Dr. Piss talk about vicarious trauma all the time, how that seeing seeing the trauma, hearing about it is just as painful and just as difficult as experiencing firsthand. Um, oh, yes. How did how hard was it or was it hard to separate it being your own mom going through a traumatic event and having to been having been a paramedic for the time you were um, when it hits close to home? How how hard was it to process that and deal with it in that moment? Incredibly hard. And such a good question, Ronnie, because you wouldn't believe how many people say, oh, but you were a paramedic, so you were equipped to deal with this. And the first thing I say is, okay, we didn't normally handle like extreme ICU patients. Like in the, like that wasn't, I mean, now sometimes we did have to track people and we'd have to do all the emergency things, but it was a short period of time to hopefully get them to that next level of care. Um and then the second thing is when it's somebody you love, the whole world spins. And have you seen those movies where like they're showing, they do such a good job of showing the world going around and the person's like ears are like uh, screaming and they can't hear anything. And there's like whistles going off and you're like reaching and it's fuzzy. That's what it's like, you know, and you know, something else is interesting. And I know Dr. Lauren doing what you do, you know, something about this too, or a lot about this, not something um, is that. And I think sports teaches you this is to really pay attention to your gut, not your feelings. That's a different thing, but your gut instincts. Um, so what's interesting is when we found out the news, um, we took turns ever since all of our kids got married, like, okay, one year we'd be at Christmas with my family. And then the next year we'd all go to the in-laws, you know, we'd take turns. It was seemed like the natural thing to do when all the siblings are older and married. So it was actually my parents' turn. We were all up in Georgia with them but then my husband um got a call and his sister who we hadn't seen in five years was going to be in mobile visiting her family and so my mom was like well you should go and so we were there christmas eve with my family and um we went to leave and at this time we didn't have our kids and i don't think i'd ever had like a panic attack or anything like that i never really experienced any um 
I mean, I had like normal ups and downs, but I don't think I ever experienced any like true clinical anxiety or panic or anything like that in my life. So we go to leave. It's just me and my husband. And as soon as we hit with the interstate, literally like it was somebody grabbed my stomach and it pulled up through my heart and I couldn't breathe. And I reached over and I touched my husband. I said, go back, go back. And so we went back. Now what's bizarre about this is every time we go back, I have chills all over my body telling you the story is I would hug my mom and I would say, I don't know why. I just don't want to leave you. And I can't explain it. And she was like, oh, you're so silly. You're so sweet, Suze. Now I should tell you that we had just gotten the news of her remission from cancer two months prior. So I'd been driving her to all her cancer treatment. So she was had just gone through ovarian cancer and beat it that she wasn't supposed to beat. And um, anyway, she'd had a walk with my uh, it was either my dad or my sister-in-law a couple of days before and said, I wonder what God is using this cancer to prepare me for. And he said, no, 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 Lynn, this was the thing. This was a thing. And she was like, I don't know, Doug, I'm not so sure. And so see, there was her preparation happening, something she didn't know. Well, anyway, fast forward back to me coming back is I actually did that five times and never in my life had I experienced that before but I'm telling you it was like an undeniable like somebody was squeezing me and I could not breathe and as soon as he turned the car around and we would pull up in that driveway I could exhale and for some reason the fifth time um and my mom's words still ring in my ear and I hug her and I said mom I I know this is silly I don't even know what's happening I just know I, I'm not supposed to leave you I don't want to leave you and she hugged me and she looked at me and she said Suze, I'll be right here when you get back. And that would be the last time I saw her able-bodied. And what's crazy is I, I still can't in my mind, and I think this is probably something fascinating to you, Dr. Lauren. Um, I still don't have memory of her, even though I was 34 and the wreck happened as an able-bodied person. I know that she was, but when I remember her, she is in the wheelchair with even the memories that I know happened. She's not you know, when you see a picture in your mind, but anyway, so we went down to Mobile, that was Christmas Eve, and the next day, we were, it was Christmas Day, was on a Sunday, so we were in church, and for some reason, we had left our phones in the car, so we come out to the car, and um, we see there's like a whole bunch of missed calls, and this was not in the fancy iPhone days, it was like those uh, Samsung with like the keyboards this big, and the, you know, the screens this big, and um, so at first I start listening to the calls and this goes to your question, Ronnie, what starts to happen is it was like, Hey, there's been a wreck. Somebody's injured all these things. And I think initially your mind goes through a little bit of denial. I was like, some, somebody's playing a trick, like no, nothing's wrong. Like everything's fine. And then the call that I remember that, like, I just dropped the phone and I couldn't even speak was it was my sister. And she said, um, Suze, there's been a wreck um mom is being life flighted we don't know if she's going to survive where are you where are you why aren't you answering your calls and so first it was like this wave of guilt like oh my gosh by the time I call back my mom could be already dead you know this could be the end and here I was and they're visiting and being happy and I didn't even know um so I look at my husband very unemotional and I said um there's been a wreck mom might die we have to go and so there was just a bizarre non-processing and I think I was trying to do the thing I had to learn as a paramedic I was trying to be like hold on things have to happen here in order for us to get over here but I can't believe this right now if I'm going to function here to get there so 
he called his parents and said, hey, I need you to pack our stuff right now. We've got to go. So we we somehow, I'll say this on the Zoom, on the live, the police can't come get me after the fact, but we somehow made that seven and a half hour drive in four hours. And um, yeah, so, <laughs> and um, we walked into the house and it was like a, um, not a bloodbath, but it was a bizarre sight. So it was like my dad was there and he, you know, was still dressed for church and had blood all over his clothes. And my brother and his wife were there and they were playing. The kids were sitting there and the kids were old enough to not be thumb suckers, but they were on the couch sucking their thumb, kind of rocking. And I just remember thinking, everything will be fine when mom gets home. And then as soon as I thought it, I thought, wait, she's not coming home everything has just shifted and it really was like 9-11 you know for those of us that remember it was like a pivotal you knew that no matter what happened in the future no matter how much we were all gonna like root for each other and you knew that nothing of the fabric of our country would ever be the same again you knew that there was a innocence of our mindset that was forever lost and that something that was always going to be with us so we call that our 9-11 family moment and um yeah to your question, Ronnie, I didn't mean to be so long-winded, is when I was a paramedic, I can, this kind of relates to this, there, my very first call for a full code, I remember we got on scene, and um, don't worry, you're with, you do a lot of ride-alongs, so I was with my two partners, and they're like, get the jump bag, we go out there, and I see this man, and I hear his wife over here screaming, and I see this man laying there, and in my mind, not out front, you got to hold your face together, in my mind, I'm thinking, oh dear God, somebody call for help, and then the very moment I thought, I thought, Susan, you are the help. And so I had to look at him with compassion and I had to completely detach so that I could help him so that I could hopefully get him back to his family. So I had to like, there's um, quite a few mindset tactics I still use to this day and they use acronyms because it helps me, but it's, I had to get really in the zone and focus and be like, okay, what is wrong with him? We have to do it. We have to fix it. So I was trying to do that with, when I walked in the door I saw all that I saw and the blood and the kids and everything. And um, I just remember thinking, this is really a bad movie. Like somebody's playing like a bad trick. There's gonna be a camera that jumps out at any moment. So yeah, I think there's not anything, no matter, you can definitely be prepared in other facets, like have your papers together, have lots of like how-tos for your family in case you're even gone on a long trip and unreachable, or if you're in the, end up in the hospital or if, you know, eventually, because none of us are getting out of this life alive eventually when you die, but there's nothing that can prepare you. I don't, I don't believe personally, just from having seen a lot of trauma and held a lot of people's hands as they've taken their last breath. I really don't believe there's anything you can actually do to prepare for what that is going to feel like. And I think that the reason is, and it's a good reason is because like you, Ronnie, there's nobody else like you on the face of the earth. Like that's exciting, you know, and Dr. Lauren, there's nobody else like you. So there's nobody else like me. So when I leave this earth, it's going to impact different people in unique ways because nobody touched them the way I did. Not like it's some sort of superior way. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that because nobody is you and you mean Ronnie to all the people in your life, something different and very unique, right? So if something happens to you, it touches each of them uniquely. So I don't think there's a way you can actually prepare for that grief because that person is in your life now and they're in your life as how they know you so it's I think it's as unique as a fingertip you know and it really is a grief um, I think people identify grief a lot with death but I think grief can be through divorce through loss of your identity um, you know if all of a sudden you lose like your major CEO job and you're having to start from scratch 
So grief is not um, reserved, I don't believe, just for death. And it's so unique. So I didn't mean to go so long-winded, but I hope that kind oh, of- Oh, no, no. You, I, thank you for your answer. That was a-, a, a Absolutely. Answer. Yes, like you, you touched on so many different things and hit so many points that beautifully talked about, you know, one of the things I was um, hoping you would highlight was having to, even though of your profession, even though of what you were, like you said- Nobody knows what that's going to be like until you have to experience, right? You know, and even then, like even with all your training and all the all the acronyms and stuff like that, all that stuff that until you have to go through that, until yeah. it's somebody that you know, you love, you care about, none of that means anything. And and I appreciate you saying that, um, Doctor Piss. I know you have some uh, some uh, things you want to touch on and, and ask real quick. So I'm gonna let you go ahead. Um, and I'll be, yeah, same things. You were hitting on so many, so many points. Um, and the, when you, when, and Ronnie, you mentioned the vicarious trauma, right? It's it, it, these types of occurrences lend themselves to PTSD, right? Oh, and, yeah. and whether it's because of vicarious trauma or witnessing the actual, the incident yourself or whatever the case may be. And, you know, as you were speaking, you were literally touching on the stages of grief. I was so glad that you mentioned that and, and sort of tease that out because oftentimes people do associate tragedy, mm -hmm. even when someone doesn't, that people associate grief with death. And, and you said it beautifully, like, no, it's loss, right? That's what they call it, grief and loss. The grief comes from sustaining a loss, whatever the loss may be. Loss of your mom's mobility, loss of, you know, like you said, knowing her as she once was, even though she survived. It's so important to be able to differentiate that and to understand that even in the tragedy, even in the crises, when the person doesn't lose their life, there is still a loss that happens, which means that everybody connected to the person, because as you said so beautifully, because everybody connected to the person has a unique relationship with the person, even where siblings are concerned, right? Because oh, yes, yes. we, we each relate to our parents differently. What ends up happening is every single solitary person is going to navigate the stages of grief differently. Mm -hmm. And we have to know that, we have to honor that, and we have to respect that because there are gonna be waves of anger. There are gonna be waves of guilt. There are gonna be waves of denial. There are gonna be periods of depression. There are gonna be periods of acceptance and so on and so forth. And guess what? You might experience every stage of grief in the same day. Oh, you yeah. can one way in the morning, the next way in the afternoon, the next way in the evening, you can have a nightmare and wake up. You could be, you know, in your case, for example, if you were still a paramedic, you talk about triggers and stressors, goodness gracious. Yeah. So that that's those stages happen. And then what ends up happening is, and I wanted to mention this and I deliberately didn't expound on it when I, in the very beginning of the show, but on Thursday night, one of our um, sports analysts here sat down with Dak Prescott's brother, Tad, and he talked about he and Dak's relationship since their brother, Jace, had committed suicide. Mm -hmm. And he said something, said I wasn't crying today. He said something that ripped my heart out, but speaks to what you said. 
and the sports analyst asked him, the sports analyst asked him how often he and Dak talk about the loss of their brother. And in that moment, he realized that he and Dak haven't talked about it at all. They haven't talked about it. And he told the analyst, he said, I literally didn't realize until just now that we don't talk about it. They're navigating the stages of grief very, 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 very differently. And what he said was, we have to talk about it. We have to talk about it. And I know, you know, on a, in the ingest moment, people love to hate the Cowboys. But I say all the time, there has to be humanity in sports because the things that these players are dealing with, they have lives outside of their athletic play, you know? And there's so many things that are on their mind on top of the pressure that's upon them to play the sport. And just hearing that, it doesn't make excuses for the challenges that any of our athletes have. But the fans, the haters, and the fans of the team are so busy screaming and yelling and hooping and hollering and carrying on about the loss or the mistakes that were made. And they don't even recognize the pain that some of these players are carrying and what that could be doing to them because sport is, it's barbaric, but I think we even see that in the fans too. And it's so inhumane and it's so unfair. And it's just, it's horrible that you get so caught up in the sport that you forget that these are human beings that are navigating life with the same pains, the same struggles, the same challenges that many of us have. They're they the, the same red blood that we do, right? Yeah. They, you cut they, them, it's like Rocky do. Balboa. Oh, he's not a machine, he is a man. Yeah, you know, yeah. He bleeds, I mean. Yeah. They bleed, they yeah. cry, they hurt, they feel, they get depressed, they, they feel loss and People are so quick to disregard that. And it's it's not okay to disregard that. It's not okay. Ronnie. All right. I, thank you for sharing that. Um and, and that is, you know, I'm not I'm not shocked at, you know, uh Dak and his brother's response about, you know, having talked about it. Um, you know, sometimes I think guys, we we wear this badge of honor of being able to repress memories and repress traumas and things like that. And we think it is being masculine. Um, and one of the things that I always have to talk to men about is that, you know, our emotions are our superpowers too. You know, our emotions help us understand the world around us and the world inside of us too. You know, not being able to acknowledge your emotions, not being able to acknowledge what things trigger those, what things make you feel certain feelings does not make you a man. You know, I always tell people there's a big difference between maturity and emotional maturity. You know, maturity can be, you know, having a job, taking care of your family and stuff like that. But if you don't have a sense of emotional maturity, um, it, it can be very difficult to navigate life. You know, so I like you said, I do hope that they do have that conversation um, when, when that time comes and when they're ready to have that. Um, you know, what's interesting. You mind if I interject something here? Oh, Ron, absolutely. Is 
um, when Dr. Lauren was saying that, um, I, I am guilty as charged of that. And I did not realize it until um, my daughter, who I actually gave birth to both of them while I was my mom's full-time caregiver, said, uh, mommy, can we talk about Graham? And to give you reference, she's 16 now, and she was born, um, like I said, while I was caring for my mom. So I would be nursing a baby while I'm coughing my mom's ventilator with nobody there saying, God, I'm not going to survive this. You got to help me, you know? And um, I, my husband would even want to talk about it. And um, I think there's something so personal with like death. You feel like if I can just, if I can just hold them right here, because if I talk about it, Maybe it makes it more real. And then I have to enter into that porthole. I really don't want to go in because I, I will stand here today and tell you that. So she lived almost 10 years to the day like that. So the doctor said she outlived Superman himself. It was the same injury Christopher Reeve had. Um, She died December 1st, 2015. And I have had temporary deep waves of grief and crying but to be honest with you, I'm not sure I've actually gone through the actual process of really acknowledging everything that happened, if that makes sense. And part of it was just because I had to, you know, I was a mom, I was raising kids, we were moving, I was running businesses, you know, and I kind of knew in the back of my head, I'm like, Susan, if you ever go there, you might get to a place you can't get out of. Cause I had experienced like actual clinical debilitating depression before mm-hmm. while she was alive. After that, after the four miscarriages, the third one almost died from in front of my kids, like all this stuff. And I had been, and so I do wonder, is it because they're, um, you know, on the stage or is it just a personal walk? And it's, it almost feels like sometimes after you lose somebody and somebody says their name, you almost feel like you don't get to say their name. You know, mm-hmm. there's like this, Oh, moment where you want to take it and just hold it because they belong to you but you realize that's selfish you know but um one of the most beautiful quotes I ever saw about grief is that grief is the last act of love we have to give to those that's gone yeah and I think it makes it com- comforts me because it's like when you think of grief as an act of love and then the other one is grief is just love with nowhere to go if that doesn't like hit you like a knife in the chest because it's like you know I love my husband like I love nobody else on this planet right it doesn't mean I don't have any room for anybody else to love because I love each one of my kids like I can love nobody else because like we talked about we're all individually unique the love I have for my mom is is reserved for her but she's not here to give it to so it just is like this maddening you know Um, but you find other ways to do that. So like on the anniversary of her death, I always go do something she would enjoy. Like I go to the beach, I go to a coffee shop, things as a way to honor her. Um, and I think there's, there's part of the sadness that you just, you learn to live with. It never goes away. Again, I think that's okay too, because it softens you and it gives you even Mm -hmm. more compassion for people. And it gives you a really important thing called eyes to really see people, you know, so I always yeah, thought you, you don't you brought that up. So you don't get over you don't get over people, you know, passing away or dying. You right. just learn how to manage those emotions. Right. As time passes on. I always tell people like you and you mentioned both you and Dr. Pitts mentioned about, you know, really understanding how grief works. I said grief is not a linear process where you right. start here and you finish here. There right. is no point A to point B with grief. Grief is a circle. 
it, yeah. can, it can happen constantly. You can find yourself in that cycle. And like you said, when you look at grief as me giving this love to this person, even though I can't physically give this love to them anymore, yeah. even though I can't talk to this person anymore, the experiences I had with that person, I can replay those experiences in my head and still feel the same feelings as if they were here. And yeah. that's what we hold on to. And that's what we learn to cherish. I always tell people, one of my favorite quotes is I'm here for a good time, not a long time. Yeah. You know? So while I'm here and me and Dr. Piss were talking about before the show started, like I love just random crazy facts because while I'm here on this earth, I want to know as much about this planet, this earth, this existence and myself as I possibly can, because when I'm no longer here, I have no earthly idea what's going to happen. So while I'm here, I might as well try to make as many experiences with many people and situations as I possibly can. Yeah. And I appreciate you um, touching on that. Miss Susan, I, I had um, another question I wanted to ask you in, in relation to your mother. Um, you talked about how much of a tremendous athlete she was being a triathlete, even up until her tragic accident. Um, so it's kind of a two-part question. Um, after your mom's accident, was she able to uh, speak at all during her time as a quadriplegic? Oh, I actually love this question because here's where the competitive nature of sports comes in, right? And that grit and that determination, like you were talking about, and that dedication over the fickle motivation that, you know, yeah. Um, so when she finally, when they finally woke her up out of her drug-induced coma and she was at Shepherd's Final Center in Atlanta, um, they said, Lynn, so here's the deal because you, she's going to be event dependent for the rest of her life. She said, most people can't learn to eat, talk, or drink on their event because like, you and I, we all talk on um, negative pressure, like we're exhaling it, right? But vent patients have to learn to talk on positive pressure, meaning like she has to actually learn to talk on the inhale. Um, so it's a completely reverse. And then if you try to do it, you're like, yeah. like every time you try to do it, you're actually not doing it because <laughs> right. then I tried it. Um, so she was like, oh, I can't, can I? Hmm, watch me now, I'll hold my beer basically, you know? So by the time we left Shepherd's Final Center, which I think, I'm trying to remember this was so long ago, we were probably there like uh, six weeks, I would guess. Um, she had learned to um, eat small things on that because she also had a feeding tube because we had to get her meds to her and she wasn't able to swallow, you know, meds. So she had a feeding tube, a super pubic catheter, a colostomy, a trach. She had, turns out her she had a wound that went all the way down to her skull I mean it's like you name it she had it you know and she had no movement on her own except she could sometimes throw her head forward but she could never get it back up so we had to do that and again you gotta think this is a young woman she's 58 used to being an athlete but she was mentally tough you know and so she said oh okay well if that's the one thing I can control you darn sure I'm gonna do it so by the time we left she was drinking on event um, because even swallowing, you know, it's stuff that you and I take for granted how those mechanics work. Um, and those things really become mostly involuntary for us, right? I mean, our subconscious mind allows us to be alive while we sleep. It controls our breathing and all those things. We don't think about that. Um, so she had to learn to be aware of all the things she was never aware of before and learn to do them in a way that her body was programmed to like, you don't do that. And then um, she actually learned to talk. It was it was very faint, but she would, um, Sus, Sus, can you read that? So it was more like a whispering, but she could do it. And she would try to um, sing in church because she loved the Lord more than anything in the world. And so she would um, do that. Sometimes her vent would start popping. I'm like, okay. Um, the day that we found out we were pregnant with my um, oldest daughter, my 
or no, when I, my, I broke my water, when I, my water broke, my husband runs downstairs because we had moved in with them. We gave up our, my job and our belongings. We could move in with them so I could be her full-time caregiver so she wouldn't go into a home. And my dad and my husband worked to pay the bills so we could keep her at home. So come running downstairs. Oh, her water broke. And all of a sudden you can hear mom's bent, boop, 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 you know, popping because she's all like excited. I'm like, okay. So yeah, she was very determined. Um, had that grit and she wasn't going to let somebody tell her what she wasn't going to do. So she talked, ate and drank on her vent for the 10 years that she, you know, lived like that. So what are in the 10? Oh, ahead, I just wanted to point because you, you said something that's key. I, I say this often to my clients is that when crises arise or we find ourselves needing to endure, um, traumatic events or, or unexpected circumstances, those are golden opportunities that can bring us closer together as a family system. And so oftentimes it's during those crises, during those times of tragedy, that people find themselves looking for an exit route. They're, they're working on their exit strategy. And I believe that that's where therapeutic support can even be that much more beneficial and helping to unify the family system. I love the fact that you clearly had the support of your husband to make these adjustments that needed to be made, the adjustment for your father and having to see his wife in this state, but also the overall support of the entire family system that says, hey, this is tragic and None of us were expecting this and we all have to make an exorbitant amount of adjustment, but it sounds as if this brought your family closer together. And I just wanted to take a moment to celebrate that, to applaud that, to acknowledge that because so oftentimes it's at times of crises during these tragic moments that families are torn apart and it doesn't have to be that way if each member of the family system would be more deliberate and intentional in capitalizing upon the moment looking for those seeds of equivalent benefit that would lend themselves to us being able to take advantage of this horrific occasion but to bring good out of it. So I just wanted to acknowledge that. Well, thank you for saying that, Dr. Lauren, because it gives me opportunity to speak truth here. This was my husband on the on that four hour drive back to Atlanta. He said, babe, if your mom survives this, whatever we have to do to take care of her. And I said, what do you mean, whatever we have to do? Because I knew in my mind, I couldn't bring it up for a couple of reasons. Number one, I didn't want it to hurt our marriage. I didn't want him to resent me down the line and be like, babe. So God was very gracious. He was the one that brought it up. And then when we found out her condition, um, you know, he said, we have to do it, you know. And, know what that means? His yeah. emotional intelligence is on Pluto. Your oh. relationship intelligence is on Pluto. You talk about the importance of emotional availability. That speaks volumes to who he is. Oh, he's amazing. I tell people all the time. So look, I'm, I'm fluent in, um, I'm bilingual. I'm fluent in English. Sorry, that was a trash can. <laughs> I'm fluent in English and sarcasm, so um, bear with me here. But uh, I, I tell people all the time. You he and Ronnie like, both. He is Susan, crazy. You and Ronnie man. both. Oh, yeah. My brother's my younger brother. I love it. I tell people all the time. So we have this joke and we have to tuck our crazy in when we're around people that don't appreciate it. But since y'all appreciate it, so I say he is the craziest man on the planet because he has not run for the hills yet. And he looks around, he leans in, he says, I have bad knees. <laughs> 
<laughs> that sounds like my husband. Like, said, he doesn't have bad knees. I do. I warned you. I got. Yeah. I, I warned you that you're about to enter into a, a, a dimension of crazy. Are you yeah. sure? I asked several times. My parents said, "There's no gift bags." Are you sure you want to enter this portal of crazy? Because there's no turning back. Yep. I had to tell my wife that the same thing. He was like, "You sure you don't want to run?" I was like, <laughs> "I was like, I'm cool, crazy. I, I, I'm a, I'm a level of crazy that I only understand." So yeah, you know, and now it, you're and your wife does too. Clearly, yeah, right. Yeah, it, it takes a it takes a certain level of crazy to understand crazy. You know. Yeah. So, um, Susan, I have I have one more uh, question for you. Um, you've talked about so many things in, in terms of resilience, um, you know, uh, family dedication, family coming together, being one. Um, in the 10 years that your mom was a, a quadriplegic, what are some of the takeaways about just firsthand view of your mom having to live with this condition? What are some takeaways that you have about your mom? And, and what are some things that you take with you in the, in the um, coming up on 10 years since her passing and everything that you use on a day-to-day basis? Mm, good question. And the first one that actually comes to mind is something Dr. Lauren touched on when you were talking about how the teams can be barbaric and the fans is um, human dignity. Notice I didn't say American dignity or culture, just we're human beings, you know, just human dignity. And the reason I say that is because, you know, every day my mom had to lay there like completely naked while we bathed her doing all these things and the friends of hers that would come over and help me were very careful to be like okay Lynn I'm gonna they would talk her through it because I knew this was her body I'm gonna uncover your legs Lynn your bottom half and we're okay and my mom had this way about her that you could tell she would just go to her like mental place and she'd be like well can you turn the music up loud or let's have this show on you know and that was not her being weak. That was her being strong enough to endure what she had to endure with her human dignity being kind of just laid out there, you know? And I mean, as women, you know, once we have kids, we know something about that loss. It's like, okay, whatever, you know, it's like 30 people run into the room and you're given birth and everything's exposed, you know, whatever, but it, it's another level, you know, because that was her every single day for 10 years. And she was already a grown woman, you know, she was 58 years old. She had her own dignity. So I think just that human dignity, I often tell my children and my clients, I'm like, listen, one of the most important rules you can live by is treat every person you meet as if they're the most important person in the world, because for all, you know, they very well could be, you don't know what God has in store for this person. And who they're going to be and not because you're trying to impress them, but because it keeps your heart pure and your mind full of looking at things through the right lens. So that's the first thing that comes to mind is human dignity. And then the other thing is just, um, and I know this sounds really silly, but I mean it in a, um, in a way that applies all of life is ultimate organization. And it, it sounds really like it doesn't relate here, but it really does because, um with her because everything was like touch and go life and death we had to have you know the most important thing so this I relate to sports and life right here by our bed right not trying to be gross really didn't matter if her colostomy had an accident when all over the floor but it would matter if she couldn't breathe right so this is something I learned as a paramedic is the ABCs um airway breathing circulation that's great you stop the femoral bleed they died a minute and a half ago because they actually had an airway block so that thing that looked urgent could have waited right so 
um, just ultimate organization really helps you not only get through the moment and kind of keep your blinders on and stay right here. Like before we got, got on this call, right? Y'all knew I was in the middle of moving day and I was like, mm -mm, that that's not here right now, right here. I'm here with you, Dr. Lauren. I'm here with you, Ronnie. And you're the only people in my world right now. And you're the only ones I'm here to talk to and hopefully serve y'all and serve your audience. You know, this is for you. Nothing else exists to me right now. So I think having that ultimate organization keeps you to be able to function, but it takes preparation. Um, and yeah, so with that, um, you know, I worked on something, created it through the years, but it's the peace of mind system. And it basically gets all of your ducks in a row for, again, not just when we die, because it's not an if, you know, none of us are getting out of this life alive, you know. I mean, I've been working on a project I live forever so far, so good, but you know. When, when you get so it, when you get the, hard, so when you get the patent, I won't mind being a beta, beta uh test. All right, I got you. you know. <laughs> but you know, just having everything in a row, because I think so much of also what strikes us, and I know Dr. Lauren, you've probably seen this, and I saw this a lot as a paramedic, is the after effects of what happens to the people um that doesn't need to happen because there was a lack of preparation. And usually the lack of preparation is just because people don't know what to have together because they've never been through it. So they're kind of like, well, I don't know. And so it's deer in the headlights. I'm just going to go over here and work on this. So, you know, with that, just having the right things in place, having them organized the right way and guaranteed that they're going to be to communicate to the right person when the time needs be takes such a load off. So you're like, okay, if something happens, I've done my absolute best. And then the third thing is to just give yourself and others around you as much grace as you possibly can. And like Dr. Lawrence said earlier, you know, you're going to have waves of anger. You're going to have depression and giving them grace, but also speaking truth into them. So I'll wrap up with this part. Sorry. Uh, and not that y'all, I don't even know what time it is, but just with the answer of this is what I meant. Um, there was one time that, uh, it was like touch and go. We had got her home and her ventilator was popping and somebody was there like a dental assistant helping brush her teeth. And I couldn't figure out what it was. And I checked her settings and I'd done this thing and I changed her uh, like tubing and nothing. She, the ventilator was still popping and her lips are starting to turn blue. And she looks at me with the, her big, beautiful blue eyes and she mouths, I trust you, Suze. And I was like, well, don't, don't, I don't do it. Crazy life. And so I back her up into her bedroom and I switch vents. And again, there's so much to remember, right? You don't know what you don't know. And this was not stuff I knew as a paramedic. And so, right. And it's still popping. And I'm thinking, and my one prayer when all this happened is God, please do not let my mom die on my watch. I, I know I won't survive that. My brother and my sister will hate me. I will hate my, I will not survive this. Do not let her die on my watch, especially from ignorance, right? From something like that. So right at that moment, my dad walks in the door from work. And I'm screaming. I said, dad, 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 she's, I, I don't know. So he runs in there. He takes off her tubing, pulls out her inner cannula, puts the new one in and puts on and she's fine. It was like, she had a complete blockage in her inner cannula that slides in and out of the tray. Whew, I ran to the top of the stairwell. I sat there and I was bawling and a good friend of mine, because this is the thing too, you got to surround yourself with good people, right? That already know you and that have that relationship. She comes around there. She said, Susan, it's okay to be angry. I'm like, okay. and she was like, it's okay. You're angry. I'm like, okay. and she was like, yeah, you're angry. And I'm like, okay. and she said, yeah, but you know what? It's okay. And God's big enough to take your anger. Like he can take it all. And I was like, oh, so I think like 
give people permission to have that, you know? So those are the top three things really is that human dignity, ultimate organization and preparation, and just give yourself grace and surround yourself with the right people ahead of time, you know, build your tribe before all that so that they have the permission to be like, you know, like if you and I knew each other, Ronnie, and something tragic happened, and I saw you going down a dark path, and maybe you're like drinking heavy, I would be able to approach you and be like, Ronnie, can I speak love into you, brother? Because I'm concerned for you because I see you doing something. I know you don't mean to. I know you don't realize you are. I know you're lost in grief. But can I just sit with you? Can I take you somewhere? Can I, you know, like have those relationships where you can speak life into people and you love them enough. Now, here's the hard part that you're willing to lose them because they may not want to hear the truth, but that you love them that much. You're willing to go there with them in grace. Man. Susan, thank you. Thank you for that. I, I I have no other words, but we really appreciate you, your your perspective, your story, your testimony and the lessons you've left with us today. Thank you a thousand times over. Oh, um, it's such guys. a beautiful story. And, and, and just the courage, the resilience, the toughness that you've embodied and, and, and displayed for us today. Man, thank you so much. I, I really appreciate you coming on. You're welcome. And if I could leave y'all, give your uh, listeners or your viewers a freebie. I have uh, my three favorite top mental things I run through and I'm sure Dr. Lauren all these, but I still use them every single day is you can go to livefreechecklist.com and it's a free downloadable PDF. And I go into like a little paragraph explaining a place to journal each one of them. And then there's a little free, like mini Mm -hmm. video tutorial on the next page where I kind of just walk people through it, you know, Mm because for me, I didn't have those, um, like those frameworks of like what to do, you know, until I became a paramedic and then I did the caregiving. And so just having those things, those things in your toolbox that you can be like, uh, let me go through that. You know, when, when the feelings are tough and when you are overwhelmed, just kind of having those things to grab onto. So yeah, livefreechecklist.com. And thank you guys for having me. This has been so much fun. I know we, we, well, big pleasure for you. Your family. Now you are allowed, you are alumni of the house talk pregame. You are always welcome back on it. Anytime, anytime you want to come on and share any more of your perspective or your, uh, your wisdom, please more, uh, please do that. Um, How are we going to go for coffee? Y'all live so far away. How are we going to get together at Starbucks or something? (laughs) We got to have a virtual, uh, uh, virtual coffee, uh, uh, get together. We got to figure something out. Dr. Pitts, you want to close us out? Yeah, I mean, you said it. I, I just my my final thought is piggybacking on what you've both said is that in these times, meet those that we love and care about in that place of common humanity, with an open mind and an open heart. Nobody asks for these things, and you 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 can be proactive in putting some systems and measures in place, but you cannot plan for all of this. You just simply cannot. So it is going to require all of us to be willing to meet the other in places of common humanity with an open mind and an open heart. And that's all we have. It's the NFL is kicking off folks. It's still baseball season, basketball, it's all the seasons. Let's rock out. Let's be humane fans. Let's be humane fans. And as we love these sports so very much, let's also remember that these players that we love and those that we love to hate are human beings with real life experiences, some of which um, are navigating crises every day. And that's all we have for you. Have a great weekend. Enjoy the sports. Enjoy the weather. And we'll see you back next weekend, everybody. Thank you.